everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the History Hotline. Today's episode is called Constantine versus the Imperial London Hotels. And if you hadn't already guessed, I'm not sure if you would know this man, but today's episode is about Leary Constantine, who was a Trinidadian cricketer, lawyer, politician, and also served as Trinidad's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. He achieved so much in his life, fought so hard for racial justice in his case against the Imperial London Hotels. He set the standard for racial equality and it is said that his case that we will go into later in the episode is kind of one of the reasons um, and one of the precedences set for the 1965 Race Relations Act, um, which was the first act legislating against racial discrimination in the UK. So I think this is going to be the first episode where I've spoken about just an individual um, and not so much an event or something within the context of something else, like with Beryl Gilroy's episode. And the reason I'm doing this is because I think, personally for me as a historian, I prefer looking at histories, social history. Um, So that kind of looks at more how people just existed, how they lived, the things they did, um, how they conducted their daily lives, um, based on the different kind of situations they found themselves in. Whereas looking at histories of people, you you tend to focus on achievement. Um, and if you remember from the Black History episode, um, I'm not a big fan of just boiling people down to their achievements in life. I think, you know, people deserve recognition and praise um, for a, a range of things. And obviously recognition is, is the, the main thing. That's the society we live in. We praise people by what they do. Obviously, we can't just praise people for nothing. Um, but I'm not usually a kind of historian that looks at individual people however I am a big fan of Leary Constantine um, and a lot of people have been requesting some history about sports people and so I thought you know I made created some content during Black History Month for Gymshark um, and Leary Constantine was one of the people that I spoke about um, and gave them some kind of information about that they used in their blog and so I thought I'd go into it in, into a little bit more depth um, if you want to read the blog on Gymshark's site I think you can just type in the history hotline Gymshark blog you'll find the um, post and I go into the details of four particular black people in British history and look at their kind of achievements but Leary Constantine he was a cricketer as you know in England anyway if you're listening in England Cricket's not a huge sport here, Um, definitely compared to how it is in the West Indies or India or Pakistan, it is not um, that big of a sport. I played it when I was younger, I played it in primary school and secondary school and, you know, it was always something I enjoyed. It's a very slow sport, it takes days um, when you get to like international level um, and the longer games. However, there are shorter versions of it, 2020 in test cricket, but I enjoy cricket and to think that there were black people and black communities before the Windrush generation in the 1940s. Leary Constantine was born in 1901. He came to England by 1923. This is um, kind of looking at black people in Britain before this big influx um, during the Windrush generation. And I think it's interesting and I think it's very important to acknowledge that there were black people in Britain before that. I mean, there were black people in Britain since the third century AD. So, you know, it's obviously important that we we think about these earlier histories and whilst it's not my 
kind of comfortable spot in history. I am a Windrush historian. That's the kind of area I like to look at and World War Two and things like that. However, it's very important. This is why we're studying Leary Constantine today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And now I'm going to talk more about Leary because this is all about him. And I'm just telling you about myself and my research interests. So, as I've said, Leary Constantine was born in Trinidad in 1901. His dad was a cricketer um, and an overseer on a cocoa estate. And Leary's performance, um, you know, in cricket as he he worked his way up, it was uh, very notable and a lot of people kind of had their eyes on him. Um, He was on the West Indies cricket team that toured England in 1923 and 1928. However, he was unhappy at the lack of opportunities for black people in Trinidad. So he decided he wanted to try and pursue a career as a cricketer in England. So obviously, as I said, this is pre-Windrush, you know, the kind of precedence has not necessarily been set for large groups of people from the Caribbean moving over to Britain. But Leary has decided that he wants to pursue a career in cricket and England is a place to do that. The history of the Caribbean, I think, is defined by migration. I literally wrote an essay about that once. And because, you know, as we've kind of gone into in past episodes, I think it was the Ray Nephew one where we looked at the history of Jamaica from kind of beginning. Um, The history relies on migration, whether it's Europeans moving into the country or people that are now classed as Caribbean moving out of the country you have African people that are enslaved that are brought into the country um, and then you have those people that leave later on to to flee different kinds of political instability that will move away for better lives that are recruited during the war in the post-war era um, in the Caribbean migration is a very big factor and whether it's into Caribbean island migration or migrations to the um the USA, Canada, Britain, or even Australia. Um that's a new a new place that a lot of Caribbean people have found themselves in more recent years. But the Caribbean I would say is literally defined by migration and I think that is why a lot of the islands are so diverse in their racial makeups. That also links me to the point where Leary's notes that he feels that black people are not getting opportunities in Trinidad and you might be thinking, how is that possible? You know, Trinidad is a country of black people. How are they not getting opportunities? Well, in 1901, Trinidad is still under the British, um, British colonial rule. So there would have been um, a class, an upper class of of white people, white British people. Um, And also post-slavery in the British Caribbean and also in the Dutch and French Caribbean, they used to take indentured labourers uh, from Asia, from China and India more specifically and more prominently and bring them to the Caribbean to work because they obviously could not use enslaved people anymore um, on the lands in the sugar plantations and the cocoa plantations and the coffee plantations. And so they needed a new labour supply and they turned to Asia because obviously Britain had also colonised India. Um, they hadn't colonised China, and I always find it quite interesting that indentured labourers came from China. I'm not 100% sure why that is. I definitely think that's something that I need to research. Um, maybe you want to research. Yeah. So the, for the most part, um, a lot of people came from India, and they had like contracts of indenture, which meant that I think the overseers or whoever owned the plantation, or I don't know if it was the actual governments in Britain, the British government, sorry, in the Caribbean, they would pay their fare and their passage, bring them over to the Caribbean islands, and then they would work to pay back their fare. And so essentially they were kind of stuck 
I don't know if they intended to go back at some point to, to India or to China, but they didn't. And so the populations of countries, especially Trinidad, Guyana, Suriname, Jamaica, they have quite um, high amounts of Indo-Caribbean people, is what they're kind of referred to, as opposed to Afro-Caribbean people. In addition to this, fun fact, um, the fact that, you know, Indian people came over, they obviously brought, you know, parts of of their culture as Indians with them. And that's why, you know, with Caribbean food, especially, you know, Jamaica, which I can speak of, we have things like curry goat, curry chicken and the spices of of curry. They don't come from Jamaica. They come from India. Um, Obviously, a lot of people, you know, know Jamaica for the use of marijuana. That also came from India. That was a plant that was grown there and it was brought over. And then it was adopted into subsections of Jamaican culture. And now we are stereotyped for it, probably for eternity. And bringing this back to the conversation at hand, as Leary said, um, he felt like there were not opportunities for black people. And because of the racial makeup of the islands and because of colorism um, and the fact that a lot of Caribbean societies are a pigmentocracy, which means as opposed to something like a meritocracy where people are favored based on their, their merit, the things that they've achieved, people are favored in a pigmentocracy based on the pigment of their skin. Um, the lighter you are being the more favorable and the darker you are it being less so. I think this is probably a culmination of things like obviously white supremacy and racism um, brought over by the British um, and the fact that you know the the least the less like black you were and the more white you were the the more favorable and the preferential preferentially you were treated and then also I'm thinking with things like the caste system in India I think they those ideas might have been adopted as well Um, it's a similar system in terms of lightness and darkness and I think the culmination of this creates creates pigmentocracy in the Caribbean. And so I think he's referring to the fact that he is Afro-Caribbean, he is a black man, he's of darker skin, and he didn't feel like the opportunities were there for him anymore in Trinidad, and he wanted to move to England. Unfortunately, um, you know, his story in England is not completely smooth sailing. However, he, he did manage to achieve remarkable things despite the adversities. But that kind of just explains the comment about lack of opportunities for black people in Trinidad. Okay, so as I said, uh, Leary's father was an overseer on a cocoa estate, a keen cricketer, and Leary's performance in the first three matches that I said in 1923, uh, where he came to Britain to play for the West Indies. The West Indies cricket team is a very strange thing to me, so I think it's one of the only times where the Caribbean all comes together to do something, and it is just the British Caribbean. Um, the cricket team is made up of people from all the islands. Um, I always just thought it was Jamaicans, but I think that's just... Hmm. I think that just speaks on the fact that Jamaica likes to centre themselves as the the kings and queens of the Caribbean. And as much as we are, you know, all Caribbean islands matter. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, the West Indies team is made up of um, a culmination of of most of the islands in the Caribbean. And they obviously go against England, Pakistan, India um, and those kind of big cricketing nations. And it still exists now, which is strange to me because obviously none of these islands are colonised in the way that they were anyway. They've got a whole new system of neocolonialism. But, yeah, they're still kind of a culmination, and so you can still play for the West Indies now if you're you're from one of those islands or have citizenship for one of those islands. Leary was a powerful batsman. His, uh, His batting abilities were likened to a blacksmith, which I don't know what that means, but maybe some cricket fans will. And he was also a, quote, devastating bowler. 
So his fielding was near perfect. His performance at Lords in 1928, where he returned, he took 100 wickets and made a thousand runs. And a wicket is when you, you know, you catch someone out or you stomp them out, just just in case anybody wasn't sure. And 100 runs are literally 100 runs. But, you know, if you hit um, a ball that's really far, I think you get a six if it goes over the, the edge of the, the pitch. Is that what it's called? Oh, I'm really showing myself here. And I used to play cricket. Anyway, he played um, so well and he was scouted during his performance for the West Indies in Britain. He had an invitation to turn professional just as he had planned and to join the Nelson team in the Lancashire League. Um, So if anybody here knows Lancashire, I can tell you now for fact that in in the early 1900s, in 1928, there were not any black people there. If there were, there were probably one or two. I think actually he might have been the first black family there. And, you know... They stuck out. He moved with his wife and his daughter and he said they had to endure rudeness, um, curiosity from people because obviously they hadn't seen black people. I don't think Lancashire is very diverse now, let alone in 1928. But he said there was like a lot of, you know, problems, aggressions, racial slurs. Um, However, actually, he also did note Um, I'm saying this like I spoke to him. I have listened to his interviews in the past. Um, He eventually kind of won their respect because I find it quite interesting when I look at sports within history. And I love, love, love looking at like sports events and sporting people in history because I think sports is one of those things that it really brings people together despite racial differences. And I know there's racism in sport, especially, you know, things like football. We see it even now. But I think when it comes to sport... I think sometimes, like, even the most racist people, if you are playing for their team and winning for them, they tend to ease up a little bit. Um, And that just sounds just disgusting. Like, oh, you know, as long as you're winning for my team, I won't racially abuse you. But that's kind of how how it tends to be. And so he's obviously in Nelson, in Lancashire, playing for Nelson, winning games for them. So the racial abuse it does ease up and it isn't as bad as it was initially for him. If you've been here for the past 10 or so episodes, you know that I like to to transgress onto some of the topic and here is today's. So fun fact about Lyric Constantine, when he was in Nelson, he had a lodger and his lodger was CLR James. CLR James, if you didn't know, um, was also born in 1901 in Trinidad and he was a historian, journalist, political activist and a socialist. His most famous works are The Black Jacobins, and that is about history of the Haitian Revolution, but placed within the context of the French Revolution. He wrote a text called Letters from London, which was a series of essays written about navigating London within the Bloomsbury Literary Circles um, as a black man. And he also wrote a book called The Life of Captain Cipriani, which explored um, this captain's experience fighting in World War I um, as a black man and the treatment that he received post-war. And also he wrote, um, you know, a lot, a lot of other things, but they're kind of his most notable works. He was a, a groundbreaking author, one of my favourite um, historians and authors out there. Um, I've studied his work a lot, um, but it was very interesting that that kind of intellectual and that kind of sporting personas met up and, you know, they were living together while James was lodging with Constantine and his family. And I think that set the kind of seed is it set the seed he planted the seed 
better. Um, yeah, he kind of planted the seed, I think, for activism in Leary Constantine's mind and just kind of being able to navigate um, certain parts of British society that maybe he may not have been able to do as a sportsman. And so I just thought it was interesting to, to little get that in. So Leary Constantine, you know, he gets to Langshin Nelson. He actually had a contract for three years um, to spend with the club. He ended up staying there for nine years and it won the league championship seven times whilst he was there. So he was clearly a great player. Obviously, cricket is not an individual sport. I'm sure the team behind him and around him were great as well. Um, but he he did really well there and he stayed there for a really long time, which is quite rare, I believe, in cricket, in the sport. In sport in general, to stay somewhere for nine years is quite a while. Um, but he really enjoyed the time there. However, so he leaves in around 1937. And then two years later, 1939, World War Two. Oh no. Um, that happens and he has to kind of join the war effort. He does continue to play cricket. Um, he was a popular player. He got the crowds um, coming in. You know, he boosted attendance despite the fact that he's kind of well into his career at this point he's still managing to to get the crowd going maybe it was because he was the only black person or one of the only or maybe because he was actually extremely talented i hope it was the latter um but yeah the war kind of ended his career in top class cricket and he kind of shifted his life priorities a little bit it's been said so he stayed in nelson when the war started and he served as an air raid precautions equipment officer um, and as a billeting officer for incoming evacuees, because obviously people got sent to the countryside to avoid the bombs in the big cities. In 1942, however, whilst working in a solicitor's office, Constantine was asked by the Ministry of Labour to become a temporary civil servant in the welfare department, specifically um, with a responsibility to look after West Indian technicians who had come in from the Merseyside factories. He had great organisational abilities, his prestige, you know, as an ex-West Indies cricket player and um, a black man playing cricket in England, kind of being, I guess, aware of how British people navigated, how they worked. A lot of people interviewed when they come to England from the Caribbean often know kind of not how necessarily strange British people are, but how different they are from the British people that live in the Caribbean and that they are obviously used to. Anyway, so they felt that he would be the ideal person to deal with the kind of West Indian people that were coming in to kind of get them involved in the social scene and just to acclimatise them and get them into work and things like that. So he was doing, you know, war work, just like most people during World War Two. He got involved. During the war, he worked with a lot of West Indian people, as we said. He helped them deal with the new environment and deal with also the racism and discrimination that was were being faced um, by them as they worked a lot with white people. He also worked, interestingly, with the trade unions in order to kind of ease the fear, I guess, that white people had of these new black people that were coming into the country to work, even though they were literally helping them win the war. But, you know, um, that fear is clearly real. Um, he used his influence to kind of help the Ministry of Labour actually employ more West Indians. Um, and he preferred negotiation to confrontation and that is said to have led to his success. He's also that guy, remember, he's been playing cricket in Lancashire for the past nine years or so. He's played for the West Indies. He is a, he's a big name. And so he was able to use that influence. He had used that kind of platform in a sense to negotiate um, for better conditions for black people that were coming to work during the war. He also got involved in the League of Coloured Peoples, which was started by Dr. Harold Moody, who was a doctor from Kingston, who went to King's College London, 
couldn't get a job as a doctor because nobody wanted to hire a black doctor even though he graduated from king's top of his class he ended up starting his own private practice in peckham in 1913 then started the league of colored peoples in 1931 which was an organization to help black people in britain um to navigate society to deal with racial discrimination um he was also a doctor during the war in britain he was one of the first doctors i think on site of a blitz bombing um and helped you know provide medical aid and help people and save their lives essentially leary constantine also gets involved with that and i think this is where this is why i brought in clr james i think this is a clr james influence kind of you know kind of getting involved in discrimination issues and being able to negotiate and being able to advocate for those people that might not be able to do so because they don't have that platform so 1943 constantine versus imperial london hotels so leary constantine was refused to stay at a hotel in london due to his race and he successfully sued the company and this became a landmark case in british racial equality law so in 1943 in August, Constantine played a charity cricket match at Lord's and he'd booked rooms for himself and his family, his wife, his daughter, at the Imperial London Hotel for four nights. And he'd specifically, you know, asked them when he made the booking, he said, you know, do you take people of colour? Will this be an issue at the hotel? And he was told, no, absolutely fine, you can stay here. And he'd booked him for four nights. However, as you probably guessed it, when he arrived there on the 30th of July, They said to him, you can only stay here for one night because his presence might offend other guests. His colleague, Arnold Watson, who was a colleague from the Ministry of Labour, arrived at the the scene um, and he tried to intervene and he said to the manager, you know, this is a situation. Um, But the manager was, he was firm and quite adamant and said Constantine could not stay and he also used racial slurs to do so, I won't repeat them here, um, but you can probably guess. Um, Watson argued, you know, on behalf of Constantine, um, he said, look, he's a British subject, he works for the government, and not only that, but he literally plays cricket for a team in this country, um, and, you know, that team represents the British Empire and the Commonwealth, and we're in a war, and you don't want to let him stay, um, that's how I assume the conversation went, I wasn't there though, um, and so, you know, this didn't work and you know they were asked to to leave after one night but Watson said to Constantine just don't even stay the night just we'll find another hotel they found another hotel that was actually owned by the same company as the Imperial they proved to be really welcoming and it's not like segregation was law like it was in America like you legally had to separate and be separated as a black person this wasn't the case in England people just took it upon themselves to to try and influence these laws and and put them in place in their establishments or the places that they worked in which to me makes it all the worse because it's like the government weren't even saying you actually have to be racist but you were just taking it upon yourself to be racist does that make sense no it doesn't so anyway, Leary Constantine, obviously, he was with his family at this time, his his wife and his daughter. He felt embarrassed. He was upset that this had happened in front of his family and they'd been involved in, you know, the whole debacle. And he just felt like, how can I be playing cricket for this country, representing the empire and the Commonwealth? And this is how I'm being treated. And it's for me, it's crazy because he's been living in Lancashire. He's been living where there are pretty much no other black people. And he's come to London, the Imperial London Hotel. Obviously, I'm assuming it's somewhere near Lord's, um, which is a cricket ground. 
and he's been discriminated in such a way that he's probably not really felt before and i think it probably shocked him especially during the war where everyone is meant to be coming together to fight the fascist and the racist nazis but here we are in britain being racist ourselves way go britain anyway in september uh questions were asked at the house of commons about the incident and constantine decided that he was going to take legal action so in 1944 Constantine versus Imperial London Hotels was heard at the High Court. There were no laws against racial discrimination, so he couldn't come in and say, they were racist to me, this is discrimination, because there was no law to prosecute them with. So he kind of went in on an, on a very clever angle, I find, of, of bre- breaching the contract, because he had a verbal contract with the hotel that he could stay there for four nights, and then they had obviously said he can't stay there, despite the fact that he disclosed all the information that could have been a problem, which obviously was a problem. He'd said, you know, look, I'm black. Can I still stay here? Yep, yep, it's fine. You can stay here. And then he gets there and they're saying no. Um, And so in the end, actually, the judge ruled in Constantine's favour, rejecting the defence's arguments and praising Constantine, actually, for how he handled the situation. The law limited um, the kind of award of damages against the hotel to five guineas and... This obviously meant that, you know, there weren't, the hotel wasn't really facing that much of a financial fine and they weren't being prosecuted against any racial discrimination laws, they didn't exist. However, this kind of, I think, set a standard and it set a precedence for what would and wouldn't be tolerated, clearly. Um, It didn't obviously end the colour bar in British hotels. Um, I think a few months or a year or so later there's a report of two um Sikh VCs who were refused admissions to a West End restaurant people still took it upon themselves to to create a a colour bar um and to uphold the racism that they clearly loved um however it was a milestone in British racial equality it demonstrated that black people had the legal recourse against some of some of the forms of racism that existed even though they weren't necessarily you know, fighting it based on discrimination laws, they were able to fight it in other ways, which was quite interesting. It was a key milestone, I think, and it definitely led up to the Race Relations Act of 1965. Anyway, Leary Constantine, his life, that case, and the fact that he even took that and decided to press charges, it definitely, definitely did a lot for racial equality, I would say, in Britain. He went on after the war to qualify as a barrister, as if he hadn't already done enough. Um, He established himself as a journalist and broadcaster. He returned to Trinidad, entered politics and eventually became Trinidad's High Commissioner for the United Kingdom. And I'm going to leave you with a quote in his uh, book, The Colour Bar, which is published in 1954. He sums up his experience of Britain and the British and he says, Almost the entire population in Britain really expect the coloured man to live in an inferior area devoted to coloured people, coloured people. Most British people would be quite unwilling for a black man to enter their homes, nor would they wish to work with one as a colleague, nor stand shoulder to shoulder with one at a factory bench. And he's saying this in 1954, this is after, you know, he's qualified as a barrister, he's been through all those cases, he's had his cricketing career, he's raised his family, and these are his opinions, and these are still his his beliefs about British people, British society um, at the time. And he's writing this in 54, which is obviously, you know, he's probably got more more people that look like him in Britain as the Windrush generation start to make their way. 
Um, but these are obviously still his opinions. And I think it's quite interesting that he was able to, in some ways, just kind of consistently change people's minds about black people and West Indian people throughout his career as a cricketer and then working in the um, Ministry for Labour during the war and then going through this trial and then as a barrister and being the High Commissioner. He was knighted in 1962 and made a life peer in 1969 um, by Britain. So he was recognised both, you know, in his home Trinidad and in Britain for his achievements. I think he's one of the people that I don't understand, we don't learn more about within mainstream narratives about British history. He is clearly um a very very interesting man um but yeah that is all we have time for today um i hope you've enjoyed the episode and i hope you've learned something about someone that i think is very influential to race relations in britain and his story is quite inspiring i would say i would love to see a film about him one day if there hasn't been one already if anybody is listening to this that likes to make films then you know, take this as a as a as a starting point for your research. But thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>